well, the subject for tonight is uh, the doctrine of the Trinity. And so what we're going to do is start simply by putting the doctrine on the table, making clear what it is the doctrine affirms and what it doesn't affirm. And, of course, uh, this is a critical doctrine for Christians. In fact, I would suggest it's one of the two most significant or important doctrines for Christians. Uh, the other of those two would be the doctrine of the Incarnation. And you might argue that the doctrine of the Trinity is even more fundamental than the doctrine of the Incarnation because that doctrine properly understood presupposes the doctrine of the Trinity. Right. So what we're going to do is just walk through a discussion of what the doctrine is, what it means, what it doesn't mean, and why it is that Christians affirm it, have affirmed it uh, through the whole history of the church. So that being said, uh, what is the doctrine? Well, simply stated, and I'm going to put it even more simply in a minute, but uh, the doctrine stated is this. The divine nature exists eternally in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three persons are one God, having precisely the same attributes and worthy of precisely the same homage, confidence, and obedience. Now that language is lifted out of the doctrinal statement of Dallas Seminary, but I could have lifted any uh, statement on the Trinity out of just about any properly Christian confession. And although the wording might be slightly different, the idea would not be at all different. Right? This is the historic doctrine of the Trinity. Now, let me put it more simply. Right? In other words, the doctrine of the Trinity is the doctrine according to which there is precisely one God who is precisely three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, or to put it even more simply, right? The doctrine is uh, is the the doctrine according to which the one and only God is three persons, right? So that's that's the doctrine basically stated. Now, what are we not claiming when we affirm that God is triune, that there is one God who is three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit? Well, we're not affirming that uh, uh, that there are three gods. Right? We affirm there's one God. We deny that the three divine persons are three distinct gods. Right? Uh, we affirm that there are three equally divine persons. Right? We do not think that the Son or the Spirit are any less divine than the Father. Right? So there's one God, not three, but there are three holy divine beings or persons, not just one. And by the way, this won't show up later in the PowerPoint in this one, what I've got up on the screen. But one of the things that's absolutely critical from a historic Christian perspective to affirm is this. Each of the design persons, as that first statement I read indicates, is holy divine and has all of the attributes essential to divinity. So if, for instance, omnipotence, right, having all power, if that's essential to being divine, then it's not enough to say one of the divine persons is omnipotent, right? Orthodoxy demands that we affirm that all three of the divine persons are omnipotent, right? Or uh, if it's essential to being God that you be uh, everywhere, right, omnipresent, then it's critical that all three of the divine persons be omnipresent, not just one of them. Now, I realize that's going to raise some questions uh, about how do we think about Jesus, the Son, 
who, who became one of us, but we'll address those tomorrow. And so happily I'll put that off for now. Right. So then, what, what do we don't, what we don't affirm is a view called tritheism. Right. Tritheism is the view that there are three gods. Right. Again, we deny that. Why? Because, well, to, to put it very bluntly, no pun intended, uh, to put it very bluntly, right, tritheism is heresy. Right? The view that there are, that Father, Son, and Spirit are distinct divinities or distinct gods is heresy. And Tim, what do we know about heresy? It's bad. Right? Uh, and so the church has historically condemned that. Also, uh, we do not affirm a view which goes by the name of modalism. Modalism is also a heresy, and it's the heresy that says that the one God is really just one person. And when we talk about the Father, or we talk about the Son, or we talk about the Spirit, we're not talking about three distinct persons, we're talking about one person who takes on different roles. Right? There are some folks who think, well, uh, sometimes uh, the one divine person who is God wears the hat of Father, sometimes He wears the hat of Son, sometimes He wears the hat of Spirit, and so He appears in different guises or different modes. That's why it's called modalism. Uh, at different times. Well, again, that view, which is known as modalism, is also heretical, right? It denies the plurality of the divine persons. Now, that's the doctrine in a nutshell, right? There's precisely one God who's precisely three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, that being said, um, why is it that Christians affirm that Jesus, I'm, I'm sorry, affirm that God is triune? Why do we affirm the doctrine of the Trinity well, to put it very basically, right, Christians affirm the doctrine of the Trinity precisely because Scripture teaches it. And what I want to spend most of the rest of this first session doing is talking about that, about the claims that Scripture makes. So why affirm that God is triune? Well, the Scriptures teach it. First of all, the Scriptures teach that there is only one God, right? And we'll come back and talk more about this claim in a few minutes. Right? But first of all, the Scriptures teach that there is only one God. But the Scriptures also teach that the Father is God, that the Son is God, and that the Spirit is God. Right? So there's only one God, and yet the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. Now, so far we don't yet have the doctrine of the Trinity. But when you add to those four claims, these next three claims, what you've got is basically the doctrine of the Trinity. So not only does Scripture affirm that there's only one God and that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are each God, the Scriptures also affirm that the Father is neither the Son nor the Spirit. The Son is neither the uh, Father nor the Spirit. And the Spirit is neither the Father uh, nor the Son. Now, if you take those seven claims and put them all together, you have the historic Christian doctrine of the Trinity. There's one God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are each God, and yet none of those are identical with either of the other two. You put all of that together and you have the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, as far as the claim that there is only one God... As you're probably well aware, first century Christians inherit their fundamental understanding of the divine nature from Judaism. 
And as I'm sure you're aware, Judaism is monotheistic. Indeed, one of the most fundamental texts in Judaism is Deuteronomy 6.4, which is uh, known as the Shema. Right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So the early church, in affirming that there is precisely one God, is following in the footsteps of the Jewish tradition out of which Christianity arose. I don't suspect that's a surprise to anybody. But of course, the early church's affirmation that there is only one God is not primarily founded on Jewish teaching. Rather, it's primarily founded on Jesus' teaching. So why is it that the early church affirms that there is precisely one God? Well, because Jesus believed that there is only one God. Right? So for instance, this is Mark 12, verses 28 and 29. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Of course, Jesus himself there quoting from Deuteronomy. In John chapter 5, John records Jesus as saying this. This is uh, Jesus uh, interacting with uh, the Jewish leadership. And he says, how can you believe, he says this to the Jewish leadership uh, in Jerusalem, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Right? And I just mentioned these two texts. There are others as well that indicate Jesus affirmed that there is only one God. And of course, that's the fundamental basis for the church's affirmation that there's only one God. Now that being said, of course, the biblical witness doesn't stop with the Gospels, right? We have New Testament letters and, and, uh, as well as Acts. Well, not only did Jesus teach it, but of course the apostles whom he designated as his spokesmen also taught that there's only one God. So for instance, this is Paul writing to the Corinthians, right? Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one, right? Now this isn't surprising, of course. Paul teaches that there's only one God. Why? Well, precisely because he believes this to be the teaching of Jesus. And of course, uh, uh, it's not restricted to the letter to the Corinthians. This is 1 Timothy. Paul, writing to Timothy, says, uh, To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Right? So, um, so, the New Testament, as well as the Old Testament, affirms uh, that there is only one God. Uh, and, of course, Jesus himself affirms this. And so the early church accepts this. And this has been a part of uh, basic Christian doctrine ever since the earliest days of the church. Indeed, I, I realize there are some people in the broader culture who will want to claim that the doctrine of the Trinity or the doctrine of the Incarnation or the doctrine of the Atonement, to mention just three really critical Christian doctor, doctrines, develop later in history, uh, you know, maybe 4th or 5th century. I don't know if any of you have read uh, Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code. You're familiar with any of that kind of stuff? Well, suffice it to say, nothing could be further from the truth. You find explicit Trinitarian as well as explicit incarnational and an explicit understanding of the atonement very early in the history of the church. 
So then, the early church affirms there's only one God. So also, the early church affirms that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is God. Probably the best text on this is out of Acts 5. This is uh, the text where uh, Ananias and Sapphira sell a piece of land and then pretend to give the proceeds to the church, but in fact only give part of it. And as Peter says to them, uh, the money was theirs. The problem uh, with what they do is not that, uh, that they held some of the money back. It's that they pretended to be giving it all. It's that pretense that, uh, that gets them in fairly severe trouble. By the way, that ought to say something to us about how incredibly significant the purity of the church is to God. Uh, but I'm not going to pursue that right now. But this is Acts 5, 3 to 4, Peter speaking to Ananias. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Notice what, what Peter says to Ananias is, uh, you, you lied to the Spirit, and then he links that to lying to God. The clear implication here being the Spirit is God, right? You've lied to the Spirit, you've lied to God. I will probably talk about this some tomorrow when we talk about the Holy Spirit more specifically. But you will also notice an implication of this text is that the Holy Spirit is a person, not a force. Why is that an implication? Well, in order for you to be lied to, you have to be a person. Because to lie to somebody is to try and deceive them. But in order to be deceived, you have to be able to have beliefs, right? But in order to have beliefs, you've got to be a person, right? So this text also indicates that the Spirit is a person. I'll talk more about that uh, maybe tomorrow if we have a few minutes on it. Another text, 1 Corinthians 3, 16-17 Again, this is Paul writing. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy. And you are that temple. Well, here again, the clear implication of what Paul has to say here is that the Spirit is none other than God. Right? Why? Well... Paul says very explicitly to the Corinthians, you are the temple of God, you are the temple in which the Spirit dwells. Well, that surely implies, it seems, that uh, Paul understands the Spirit to be divine. right? And uh, when I teach in the seminary classroom, I usually will stop and say any questions, but we're going to have some Q&A time later. So if questions arise as we're going through this, keep them in mind and you know, be happy to address some questions later. So then, there's only one God. The Spirit is God. So also the Son is God. Perhaps the most obvious text to, uh, to cite in connection with the divinity of Jesus, the fact that the Son is God, is of course John 1. John 1, verses 1 to 3, in the beginning was the Word. And of course we know the Word is none other than Jesus Himself, Christ Himself. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. 
Right, so John begins his gospel with this affirmation that the Word, who is, of course, Christ, is in fact God. And you'll notice that the fact that that Christ is God is also tightly connected with the fact that He is the creative agent by whom God has created all things. In fact, this isn't the only text that links the divinity of Jesus with the fact that He is the ultimate creator of all things. Indeed, uh, um, we'll talk about a couple of other texts in a few minutes that, that make that connection as well. But sticking just with the Gospel of John for a minute, this is John 8, verses 57 and 59. So the Jews said to him, and again, the Jews in, in, in view here happen to be the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? By the way, I, I don't have time to walk us through this entire chapter. Uh, that would take more time than I have for, for, for this, in fact. But this is in the context of some really tense back and forth between Jesus and the, uh, uh, and the Jewish leadership. And in fact, uh, the question of Jesus' paternity gets raised. Right? Why? Well, the Jewish leadership know there are questions about Jesus' birth. Right? And so uh, they insinuate, in fact, uh, not only do they insinuate at one point, then later they come back and explicitly say this, uh, but they make the point pretty clear, hey, Jesus, we're not the illegitimate ones here. Right. By the way, he returns the favor, right? Because they want it. No, he does, right? They claim Abraham is their father, and what does Jesus say? Abraham is not your father. How do you know that? Abraham believed, and if you were his children, you would believe too. So you're not his father, or you're not uh, his children. You are true sons of your father, but your father is the devil, right? Uh, by the way, I don't wave it to Charlie because you know the devil. Hey, Char- I didn't mean that, right? That's. I just realized I say the devil and then I nod over here. I mean, that could be misunderstood, right? But, but anyway, this is in that context, right? This is toward the end of that discussion. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And of course, you can imagine someone who's not familiar with the Scriptures wondering why in the world they wanted to stone Him for saying, I am. But of course, if you know the Scriptures, you know when He says, I am, He is using the name God gives Himself in Exodus 3 and applying it to Himself. And of course, those around Him understood this to be a claim to be God. How many of you have heard the claim made sometimes out there in the culture Jesus never said He was God. Have you heard this claim? Yeah. These people don't know the Scriptures. Because those around Jesus surely understand Him to claim to be God. So much so that they want to kill Him because of it. In fact, in keeping with that, this is John chapter 10, verses 31 to 33. The Jews picked up stones again to stone Him, and Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone Me? And the Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Right? So here yet again, those around Jesus, particularly his enemies, understood he was clearly claiming to be God. And just as an aside, um, 
And I probably shouldn't get off script because of time constraints, but oh well. Um, just as an aside, um, what is the reaction of the apostles when people mistake them for God? For God's? Uh, think here about Paul, for instance. Oh no, 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 no. I'm not a God, right? That's, that's the reaction of a righteous man who is a mere man if someone thinks that person is God, right? A righteous person doesn't let other people think that they are God if they're not. Does that make sense? So, the mere fact that those around him take him to be claiming to be God and he doesn't correct them is itself quite instructive, if that makes sense. So then, uh, those are texts out of the Gospel of John. This is a text out of Paul's letter to the Colossians. This is Colossians 1, 15 and following. Paul writes of Christ, He is the image of the invisible God. I don't have time to pursue this, but notice the image language here. Right? He is the image of the invisible God, right? Uh, the firstborn of all creation, which doesn't mean he's a creature, it means rather he's preeminent, as we see later in this text. He is the image of the invisible God, and then notice where he goes next. For by him all things were created. Again, this connection between the divinity of Christ and the fact that he is creator. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. That's Paul writing to the Colossians. The author of Hebrews says this. This is Hebrews 1. By the way, who, who wrote Hebrews? Well, as you may be aware, we don't know, humanly speaking, who wrote Hebrews. But of course, the ultimate author of Hebrews, as would the rest of the Scripture, is God Himself. But in any event, the author of Hebrews says this. This is the way his, uh, his work begins. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Notice yet again this emphasis on Christ being the Creator. He, the Son is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of, by the word of His power. Um, by the way, the description of Christ here as the Son is quite significant in its own right. Why? Well, the Jews would have understood, and of course the early Christians from a Jewish background would have understood that the true offspring of a father bears the nature of the father. Right? That's precisely why Jesus makes the point, you claim to be children of Abraham, but you're not. Why? Because you don't do what he did. You're not like him. Right? So, for the author of Hebrews to refer to Christ as the son of the father uh, is another indication that, uh, that the son is to be understood to be God. Um, but if that text isn't clear enough, the author of Hebrews goes on to say, this is later in that same chapter. But of the Son, He says, and if you look at this, the He who is saying this is none other than God Himself. So what the author of Hebrews is telling us here is, here's what the Father says of the Son. But of the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. 
The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. So here we have the author of Hebrews telling us that the Father refers to the Son as God. And presumably, you know, the Father would be in a position to know. Right? And then the text goes on. You have loved righteous, um, yeah, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. This is an interesting text precisely because the Father refers to the Son as God, but then refers to the Son as having a God, who is, of course, none other than the Father himself. Right? So then, <laughs> back to the overall point. Right, The early church affirms that there is precisely one God because she believes Jesus and the apostles to have taught this. Uh, the Spirit uh, is described uh, in the Scriptures in terms that clearly imply that He is God. And the Son is talked about both in the Gospels and in the New Testament letters in ways that clearly indicate the writers of those texts take Him to be God. And, of course, in the case of the Gospels, it's not just the writers of the Gospels understand Him to be God, but that He understood Himself in that way. Okay? So, just by way of quick overview of where we've come. Now, again, the fact that the Spirit, the Son, and the Father are all divine, and that there's only one God, that doesn't quite yet get you the Trinity. Why? Well, remember, there's that view called modalism according to which there's one God, but there is only one divine person who is sometimes wearing the Father hat, sometimes the Son hat, sometimes the Spirit hat. So in order to get the mature doctrine of the Trinity that the church affirms from her earliest days, what you also need is clear evidence that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are not the same person. And of course, not surprisingly, the Scriptures give us just such, uh, such evidence This is Luke 2, beginning in verse 25. And this is a quotation that's worth uh, quoting or or citing at some length, and it's going to actually take up two slides. So I'm sorry, I couldn't get it readable all on one slide, at least not for people like me who need these, right? But this is the presentation of Jesus as, uh, as an infant in the temple. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. Now, if you're not thinking about this issue, you might not notice this, but this is a text where all three of the divine persons are explicitly mentioned, and it seems pretty clear they're not the same person. It's the Holy Spirit who, uh, right, we're told early on in the, earlier in the text, uh, uh, who has revealed to him that he will see the Lord's Christ, who is, of course, Jesus. He is indeed taken by the Spirit, um, uh, into the temple and, uh, and there witnesses the child Jesus. Well, clearly this means the Spirit and the Son are not the same. And then how does he end this? Having seen the Lord, having seen the anointed one, 
Right? What does he do? He blesses God. And here the reference to God seems pretty clearly to be a reference to the Father. Does that make sense? So here, here's a text where all three of the divine persons seem to be clearly in view. And it's pretty evident from this text they're not the same persons. Right? But if you don't like this, this one, probably the most obvious text uh, or, or set of texts that demonstrate that the three divine persons are indeed distinct persons are the texts that tell us of Jesus' baptism. Right? So this is Mark 1, 9 to 11. Right? In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And of course, this isn't the only gospel account of Jesus' baptism, but it'll do, right? But at Jesus' baptism, you have the Son, you have the Spirit descending as a dove, and you have the Father speaking from heaven. A pretty clear indication that, again, each of these divine persons is a distinct person from the other two. Right? Now, once you've got that in view, together with the other stuff we've already talked about, you've got the basic biblical case for, uh, for the doctrine of the Trinity. Right? There's one God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are each rightly called God, and, and yet none of those persons is the same as the other two. So there's precisely one God who is precisely three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now that being said, Christians insist, historically of course we have insisted and we still do, on the absolute equality of the Father, Son, and Spirit with respect to their divinity. Right? This is not a small matter historically for Christians. In fact, you remember the statement I started with, that statement from DTS's, Dallas Theological Seminary's doctrinal statement, made this point explicitly that each of the divine persons is worthy of precisely the same homage and obedience, right? They're all three equally divine. The Father's not more divine than the Son, and the Son's not more divine than the Spirit. Now, I realize this may raise questions. Well, why do we refer to the Father as the first person, the Son as the second person, the Spirit as the third person of the Trinity? Well, that's a good question, and I'm glad you asked. So we'll come back to that maybe later if you like. But Christians historically have insisted that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are each equal in divinity. Right? One text that Christians have pointed to on this is, of course, out of Matthew 28, where you get the language of the Great Commission. Right, where Jesus says to his disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I mean, here Jesus instructs his disciples to baptize not just in his name, or not just in the Father's name, or not just in the Holy Spirit's name, but in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. Just as an aside, this is why Christian baptism is not properly done unless it's done in the name of all three of the divine persons. This is why uh, ministers will typically, when they baptize, 
do it explicitly in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit because this text teaches us to do that. In fact, there are some Christian traditions that will actually, when they baptize, they dip the person three times. Right? In the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the name of the Spirit. I guess they're worried once won't really take. I don't know. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know about the traditions that sprinkle if they sprinkle three times. I don't know if anybody does that. But we're Baptists. We're not going to worry about that. Right? Second uh, Corinthians 13, Paul writes, and I'm particularly fond of this text. I usually preach on Sunday evenings at my home church. And when we end the evening service, we're one of those churches that still has an evening service, by the way, uh, we sing a chorus that is lifted straight out of this text. It is just this text set to music. But the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Right? It's Peter's benediction, if you will, for the Corinthians in his second letter to them. By the way, notice you have an ordering in the Great Commission and the ordering goes Father, Son, Spirit, right? Notice here you get all three divine persons mentioned, but notice the order is different. Christ and then the Father, right? The love of God, presumably that's God the Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit. So notice in one text you have one ordering and in this text you have a different ordering. In fact, check out 1 Peter 1. Right, This is the beginning of Peter's first letter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Just fun to say Bithynia, right? <laughs> According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Notice there, towards the end of that passage, you have all three persons explicitly mentioned in close proximity. But notice it's a different ordering than either of the other two I've mentioned. Right here it's, it's Father and then Spirit and then Christ. You see that? In fact, if you were to look throughout the New Testament at the text where each of the divine persons is mentioned in close proximity to the other two, what you would find is that there is no set ordering. In fact, let's go to the next slide. Uh, so for instance, right, in Romans 1, the ordering is God, presumably meaning the Father, then the Son, then the Spirit. In Titus 3, it's God, presumably meaning the Father, then the Spirit, then Jesus. Then in First Peter, it's the Father, then it's the Spirit, and then it's Jesus. That's the text we just looked at a minute ago. In Second Corinthians, which we've already looked at, it's Jesus, and then God, meaning presumably the Father, then the Spirit. In Ephesians 4, it is the Spirit, then the Lord, meaning, of course, Christ, and then the explicit mention of the Father. In 1 Corinthians 12, it's the Spirit first, and then the Lord, again meaning Christ, and then God, presumably meaning the Father. In Ephesians 5, it's the Spirit, and then the Father, and then Jesus. And in Jude 1, it's the Spirit, and then God, meaning the Father, and then Jesus. You get the point? By the way, I'm not claiming my list here is exhaustive, but it makes the point, I think. When you have all three of the divine persons mentioned explicitly in the biblical text, there is no set ordering. Why is that significant? Well, it's significant because if one of the divine persons were more important or more divine than the other two, you would expect that person to typically be mentioned first. 
But when you look at the biblical text, you don't see that at all. In fact, quite the opposite. The New Testament writers are quite comfortable switching the order around. And, again, I don't claim my list here is explicit, I mean exhaustive, because it's not. But a point worth making in connection with it is just... As a matter of, uh, of uh, advice, any time you're reading through the Scriptures, obviously particularly the New Testament, right, which, which is where the reality of the three divine persons is, is made explicit, right? I think it's implicit in the Old Testament, but it becomes explicit in the New. Any time you see one divine person explicitly mentioned, look for the other two. Almost always you will see the other two mentioned. Not always, but almost always, right? But again, there's no set ordering. 